0: As uh, so we come to another judgment oracle in 19 and 20. Uh, so, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 to 15.
1: The oracle concerning Egypt. The Lord, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them. And I will confound their strength, so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters from the sea will dry up, and the river will be parched and dry and the canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and all those who cast the lion into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from the cotton flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly de- dejected, and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed, and, uh, and the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. The princes of Zon are mere mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisers has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, "I am a son of a wise, a son of ancient kings"? Well, then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you, and let them understand what the Lord of Hosts has proposed, has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be no work for Egypt, which his head or tail, its
0: palm, branch, or bulrush, may do. So, the oracle concerning Egypt... Now, this is important because, especially in Hezekiah's day, there was constant temptation to ally with Egypt against Assyria. And so the fact that Egypt was going to be brought low is an indication that it wouldn't make any sense to try to turn to Egypt for help. And you see why, first of all, Egypt was going to be brought low. And verse 1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. You know, that's faster than the uh, Ethiopian ambassadors on their papyrus boats. The Lord takes a swift cloud as his uh, means of locomotion and uh, comes to Egypt and does what? the
2: up against
0: Yes. And What? Okay, so they they end up fighting each other, what else happens? They're utterly demoralized. Yeah. They just really demoralized and they turn to religious quackery, idols and ghosts of the dead, and mediums and spiritists and anything else. And the Egyptians are turned over to a cruel master. God brings Egypt low. Don't think of these things as being the um, result of sociological or political or military or economic forces. These things are the, the result of God's action against the Egyptians. Comments and questions through verse four.
1: The cruel master.
0: I don't know who. possibly be a reference to the uh,
3: pre-Exodus state where Israel was under the hard taskmaster of Egypt saying the situation will now be reversed and you'll be
0: the oppressed that would be interesting, I don't know my opinion. think about the things that Egypt trusted in their real claim to fame was what? Nile River. They depended on that for what kinds of things? Their food, because the, the uh, overflowing of the Nile was necessary for the fertility and the watering of the plants. So they depended on it for agriculture and for what else? Maybe so a little bit. What else? Perhaps a little bit. What else? Fishing and what else here in verse 9 yeah because you needed the reeds and other plants for the textile industry they would use plants grown around the Nile to be able to make clothing when the waters of the Nile dry up then it destroys the basic industries of Egypt agriculture, fishing and textile and uh, destroyed the economic basis for Egyptian life. That's what he's picturing here. You know, God has control of all those things, so God's going to dry up the Nile, so to speak, and destroy their economy. And, and the other thing that the Egyptians really prided themselves on in 11 to 15 was what? Wisdom. Their wisdom, yeah. They had a lot of, uh, you know, wise philosophers and, and things like that. And those the wisdom of the wise Egyptians was going to be turned into foolishness by God by the plan in the end of verse 12 that God purposed against Egypt to cause this wisdom that was so valued and esteemed to be useless to lead Egypt astray, to cause them to have no perception, no discernment. Um, so God is going to really bring Egypt down together with the things Egypt most trusted in and depended on. The Nile River and wise men. Comments and questions. Wes? God
2: always brings people down by the means of like yes.
0: Good point. Yes. Yes. God loves to uh, use the things we pride ourselves in as the very means of our destruction. Other comments and questions through verse 15? Yes, John.
4: Well, sir, tie to the gods that they worshipped and the Nile as well that would have been very important
0: to them? I think from what I've read, yes. Mm-hmm. So this would be a, ju- a judgment on their gods.
1: And the idols of Egypt will tremble at the presence of the real God.
0: Yeah. Kind of funny, isn't it? Sure. Kind of shows you uh, who the real God is, I guess. This, this would also be symbolic.
1: Not, not that it ever historically occurred that the Nile dried up or anything. This is
0: a description of another judgment. I think so. I think this is describing it in terms that the people can relate to. Right. Shane. I have a question on
3: written letters. When it says, how do you say to Pharaoh
2: I am the son of the wise, the son of
0: ancient is that mean? you know? Well I think he's saying, how can you pass yourselves off as, as being wise people as being from a wise generation or whatever when you're so foolish like you are something like that when, when your advice has proved to be so you know, brain dead <laughs> other questions and comments?
3: Uh, when it talks about
2: God bringing down men in their wisdom it reminds me of how God is wiser than men
0: uh, in his folly absolutely (laughs) you know the uh, foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men (laughs) and God you know he he despises human wisdom because it's so prideful and so independent of trust in him other comments? (coughs) the judgment against Egypt this is a three part prophecy against Egypt so we might call this the smiting of Egypt and then 16 to 25 is going to be the opposite 16 to 25 has some statements in it that I would never have believed if I hadn't read them in my own Bible. That this could possibly be in the Old Testament. So see if you can find some things that are rather surprising to you. 16 to 25. In that day, the Egyptians
5: will become like women. They will tremble and be in dread because of the the waving of the hand of the Lord's host, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it, because of the purpose of the Lord of Hosts, which He is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan, and swearing allegiance to the Lord of Hosts. One will be called the City of Destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord near the border. And it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of Hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of because of oppressors, and He will send them a savior and a champion, and He will deliver them. Thus, the Lord will make Himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. He, they will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord, and He will respond to them and will heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come to Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing amidst the the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hand. In
0: Israel, And you can see the uh, commonly repeated phrase here. What is it? In that day, repeated six times. But look at the steps that are going to be taken here among the Egyptians. In verse 16, what do you see in the Egyptian people? Fear of the Lord. And what do you know about fear of the Lord? Yes, thank you. Where did that come from? A shirt. A shirt? <laughs> did say that?
6: Your other one does.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Proverbs 9:10. Also Proverbs what? 1:7. Yeah. So they have the beginning of wisdom right here. True wisdom. Because they uh, have the fear of the Lord. They come to dread God and and tremble before Him. The land of Judah becomes a terror to the Egyptians because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which He's purposing against them. There's a lot of the Lord's purpose in all of these things. Now, one of the points that He's going to make, or or that I think He is making in this section is, It doesn't make any sense to turn to Egypt and trust in Egypt, because Egypt itself will soon turn to and trust in God. So if if Egypt is going to resort to the Lord, then why resort to Egypt and not the Lord himself? So that's the first step, is the fear that Egypt has. And then in 18, what do you see them doing? allegiance to the Lord. You see a lot emphasis on speech as a key point of our relation with God. And so they speak and swear allegiance. They submit to God. They declare their loyalty to God. The Egyptians! And then in 19, what do you see in the land of Egypt? Okay. <laughs> Uh, there's an altar in the land of Egypt yes and in 20 what do they do? we call that what? prayer prayer that's not so surprising but what's surprising? from Egypt but that's not so surprising what's surprising? yes he heard it he answers their prayer and provides them with what? Savior. a savior a champion a deliverer to deliver them does that remind you of in the Old Testament yes. judges the deliverers that they God provided when they cry to the Lord that's really remarkable and in 21 what does the Lord do yes revelation. And they worship with sacrifice and offering and make a vow to the Lord and perform it. They serve the Lord. And even more striking to me, I didn't mean a pun by that, but it is. In verse 22, what happens? And what is that? Discipline. Who does the Lord discipline? only the sons which he loves now that's incredible that they get to receive the providential discipline of the Lord in verse 23 in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, the Assyrians will come to Egypt the Egypt into Assyria the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians you see the unity among these peoples who hated each other the reversal I think of the Tower of Babel but the thing that I would just never, I never ever imagined this could ever be in the Old Testament. Verse 24 and 25, In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That blows your mind. Did you ever know that was in the Bible? That's incredible. I mean, do you remember what God told Pharaoh through Moses? Let my my people go. Now it's, blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And the third party, Israel, my inheritance. Wow. That is an incredible passage. I don't... I can't believe that Jews in Jesus' day hadn't just cut this one out of their Isaiahs. (laughs) Wow. So what do you want to say about all this? Logan. I think
2: this proves that God, in the Old Testament, God didn't only care about Israel. Yes. He was willing to accept nation in the past had tortured his people that now are turning back to him. So I think that proves that I don't think it was ever God's intention to have only one nation being his people. I think that
0: he wanted all of them to turn to Him. they just didn't. Seems to me like uh, he said something to Abraham about that, didn't he? I seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, the Jews in Jesus' day and other periods had forgotten that fundamental principle. But the are three sounds populate the earth in these three places hadn't thought about it that way but yeah I guess probably so yeah Assyria I don't know whether Assyria would have maybe been Shem or Japheth but the other two were Shem and Ham yes uh, John
6: I can see how you, you be able to bless other nations and other people with your influence you know if you're a follower of God but these people, I mean, Israel was told not to associate with other nations, and they were told to destroy other nations, so I don't know how to reconcile that. I mean, how are they going to be a blessing to their neighbor if they're always you know, against them and so unified with their self, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yes, I do. That's really another question but It's an interesting question. Who did God tell them to destroy? The people in the land never the Egyptians or the Assyrians or peoples outside of the land except under particular circumstances and he did mean for them to be a blessing I mean he meant for them to be priests to the nations I think he intended for Israel to be a conduit of his revelation, his glory to the other nations uh,
5: Shane uh,
4: this might be totally off but um, wherever you? you're talking about Egypt coming in uh, almost like
2: calling to God, you know, starting to follow God remind me of 2 Chronicles
0: 35 about the king of Egypt saying, God is with me. Does that have anything to do with it? I don't think so. Because I think this is messianic. This is in that day.
1: Oh, so you mean they're not really gonna join with the Syria in Egypt? (laughs) And
0: Yeah, I think in a way, although Assyria probably uh, bit the dust long before Jesus came, but isn't that what has happened? Is that all these nations, all these peoples turned to the Lord. I mean, one of the places where there were a lot of Christians in the early centuries was Alexandria in Egypt. And uh, you know, people from all different nations were converted to the Lord. As far as, just as far as this passage goes in the context of Messian um,
3: promises, do you think it's possible that he's kind of saying, he's using the beginning and the ending of Israel, Israel kind of started in Egypt,
2: ended in Syria when they were taken off into captivity, um, and so he's saying,
0: uh,
2: in effect, oh, I just lost it. <laughs>
0: the the uh, <laughs> the first oppressor and the last oppressor will be joined together and worship to God right yeah
2: I was going to quote a verse from the New Testament
0: and I totally forgot it sorry about that no problem yeah maybe so also Egypt and Assyria were the two powers and Hezekiah is the two superpowers Logan
2: so considering that this uh, might be Messianic so did this uh, whole prophecy about Egypt being, becoming obedient to God, was this, was this a real event that happened?
0: Or? Yeah, a lot of Egyptians, I think it's the idea of a lot of Egyptians converting to the Lord in the Messiah. But not, <coughs> but
1: not in their, not in Israel's day, not, not in Isaiah's day. Yeah. Not
0: in Isaiah's day, there was no fulfillment. This is the future. This is in that day. This is when, only Messianic. Yes, I think so. In the immediate future, there was the smiting of Egypt. In the farther future, there would be the healing of Egypt through Christ. Right. This is in that day. Is this
2: judgment
0: day? No. In the day of blessing, in the day of restoration, of David.
6: What about
0: verse 18? Yeah, what about it? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you've got the Egyptian cities speaking Israelite language and committing themselves in loyalty to God. Even one of their special cities, the city of destruction, turns to the Lord. That's what I see. So then speaking the
3: language
2: of be then... Just being able to read and understand the language of
0: so the... Yeah, they speak in the language of God's people. John? Even if the city of Alexandria, I mean, and, I
6: mean Egypt as a nation never turned to God like this. So I don't know. I mean, it says it's sweared by the Lord of Hosts. I mean, Egypt has always worshipped idols. I mean, they've never turned to the Lord of Hosts.
0: Yeah, they they did. And the Messiah many Egyptians did. Obviously this is not fulfilled in the nation as a nation, but it's fulfilled in the fact that God's blessings were given to Egyptians, just like they were given to every other people's. Yes, Karen. Wouldn't the 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 thing that Paul
3: said in
4: Romans have to do with um, I don't know, would it have to do with this prophecy because we've got people from all over the world and
3: Jew and Gentile trying to worship together and trying to, you
4: know I others and I, I don't know where the passage is where where um, Paul talks about um, okay. And, in order to make them jealous, the Gentiles were
0: accepted. would that have anything to do with the Lord? Well, certainly you can see Gentiles turning to the Lord and being accepted and being blessed. That's Romans 11, and uh, you know, I mean, they were the wild olive branches that were grafted in in that passage. J.B. this really reminds me of Isaiah too. Go back to that where.
3: All the nations shall flow, and many people shall come and say, Let's go to the So, I mean, we, we see little well, hints of different
5: nations' conversions. Right? Exactly.
0: Yes. Good point. Thank you. Other thoughts? Yeah, um, JD. It, it reminded me of uh, Isaiah 11, uh, where
2: we're talking about the wolf and the lamb and the lion and the ox. Yeah.
0: It, it doesn't make sense to, you know, like, like you said, so you know, let your baby loose near a viper's hole. It doesn't make sense to put an Israelite, a Syrian, an Egyptian in the same room much less all coming together to worship God. Good point. Yes, I agree. I mean, when you start studying Isaiah in context aren't you starting to see these themes sort of developing and, and you know, this, this doesn't seem so strange after you read up to this point. Um... It is striking language. I just continue to marvel at blessed is Egypt, my people. I just never would have expected that to be in the Bible. And, uh, but it clearly then shows God's purpose and intention to make you know disciples out of Egyptians.
5: Eric. This may have already been kind of covered, but what sense did they worship with sacrifice and offering
0: I think he's describing the future in terms of these people. He does that so often. So literally, obviously we don't have sacrifices of animals today but he's describing it. We don't have Assyria today either. But he's describing in terms of what those people would relate to. You know I mean if what what, what would you say in the uh, 16th century if you said you know there's going to be uh, airplanes carrying people around you know or there's going to be big birds with room for passengers you know whatever I mean saying there's going to be an airplane doesn't make a lot of sense in the 16th century and so also he describes to say well they're going to be baptized in particular the Lord's Supper you know in Isaiah 19 would have been really out of place You describe the worship in terms of things they can relate to I think you do that consistently, yeah, uh, Jake.
3: Uh, you mentioned uh, Alexandria in terms of Christian history. But what what cities are there in first century uh, land that that is Assyria here? Like, would that have been something Paul would have visited?
5: No,
0: we don't really have information. I mean. Antioch to Damascus would be the closest but they're not clear all the way up to Syria yet so I mean, that's, that's more to the uh, as the quote flies to the east where we don't have records of what apostles weren't there and so forth
5: So were Jews there from those places though, from Mesopotamia
0: That's a good point uh, that's a good point, thank you I
5: was voting you may have mentioned this already when I was in that year uh, to what degree do you feel like Isaiah understands the prophecy? I have no idea. Okay. So, I mean, probably doesn't understand it altogether, but maybe he has some more of an with the people listening to him
0: we hope so I mean but you can remember passages like 1 Peter 1 verses 10 to 12 where the prophets who prophesied of the grace to be brought to us inquired as to what uh, how does it say it uh, made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven so the the prophets had questions as well about what they were prophesying it's almost like if you were a telegraph operator you might not understand the message you were passing on 1
6: Peter
0: 1 10-12 other comments and discussion on 19 Jesus
5: God thinking of this as Messianic that God does to Jesus what the 10 blacks didn't like do for you. Yes. And verse says right they, now they will finally know the Lord, for anything Pharaoh said, who, who is the Lord. Yes. yes. Other comments? <clears throat> so verse 18, he
0: said, the city of
3: destruction was
0: destroyed in <clears throat> And there's some debate about what that means as well. In fact, some ancient versions, according to my uh, manuscripts, according to my margin, says the sun, the city of the sun, which may have been like a pagan city devoted to sun worship that's converted. All right. those Jews in Jesus' time would have cut us out of the Bible? What do Jews today do I have no idea. I don't think any Jews in our day hardly read the Bible anymore, do they? I mean you know everybody asks about Jews in our day, but most ethnic Jews are not religious or not, or at least not conservative. I'm sure there are a few, but I don't know what they believe. Yes, John.
4: You know, we all have some idea in our heads when we hear the the, the word messianic. Could you say just a couple words, in, you know, in, maybe in context about what we should think when we hear that word?
0: Well, what I mean by that word is the time of Christ and something fulfilled through Jesus. Messiah means the anointed one and is a reference to Jesus. That's what I mean. It seems to
4: me like that since this is an oracle against yes, Egypt, you see him. Um, Bring Assyria into it for what reason? To show the animosity, how great it was between two nations. You think this is something when Christ comes, all people are going to come to Him. And so that's why Paul called it a mystery, an amazing thing. (coughs) Yes. To me, that's always saying
5: that
4: it's hard to take Egypt completely out of this, but it just represents all people.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's unifying those who were like the lion and the lamb from chapter 11,
5: John.
6: And even maybe more so than just the idea of the nations, maybe you know, just the same point he was saying. That um, it's just this idea of their enemies. Their enemies <laughs> are going to be the people that will eventually turn to God. You know, so maybe it's not the idea of Assyria, those people right over there. And those people over there—it's more, it's more maybe, um, you know, just trying to relate to the people, maybe, you know, and that's that's the
0: prophet's way of sure. relating the story. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, it, it is describing this in terms that relate to them right here, JD. Uh,
3: this this helps me see that even in the New Testament uses the term Greeks and Jews—the unification of of people the world with through Israel it's not just people from Greece with you know, with Israel it's people from Egypt and from Africa from Asia it's all over the world people uh, coming into Christ uh, I usually just think kind of the western world you know, Asia you know, as as when we're talking about those conflicts like in Ephesians, or whatever but this is all the world who's coming into to be a part of Israel
0: good point <coughs> other thoughts and comments on 19 good discussion
5: should Jews then or would David be the problem with Wouldn't they see themselves as being sort of a conduit for everyone to God? And this would probably play to our pride and perhaps theirs.
0: Maybe, but I just think they'd have probably gagged at Egypt, my people. I don't know. Other thoughts? So you've got the smiting of Egypt, the healing of Egypt, back to the smiting of Egypt. Isaiah 20.
2: In that year, or in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him, he fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body, and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Just as my servant
6: Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot through years for a sign and a wonder against
2: Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Ethi- Egyptians as prisoners, and the Ethiopians as captive, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, for the shame of Egypt. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation, wherever we flee for, for help, to be delivered from the escape
0: of Assyria. And how shall we escape? Okay, this is a curious uh, passage <laughs> in the uh, prophecy against <laughs> Egypt. <laughs> Again, uh, the scriptures never cease cease to shock us in all sorts of ways here. Um, You got this year that the commander came to Ashdod. One of the Assyrian kings come and fights against Ashdod and captures it. And Ashdod is one of the cities of the Philistines. Philistines were five major city-states, two A's, two G's, and an E. The two A's were Ashdod and Ashkelon. The two G's were Gaza and Gath. And the E was Hekron. So you got that done. Good job, guys. At least we learned something out of the Bible. Um, So he captured Ashdod and the Lord told Isaiah to do something you wouldn't have expected him to tell him to do. Take your clothes off. (laughs) Take your clothes off. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I would slightly incline to the view that Isaiah is not stark naked here. <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is I doubt that if he was stark naked, it would have he'd have to say, and take the shoes off your feet and be barefoot. You know, if you take it all off, that would include what's on your feet. Um, also, I, I think about passages like uh, John 21, when um, Jesus was on the shore in his resurrection, and verse uh, 7, you know, the, Peter was, was naked, and he, you know, uh, they had to put that outer, outer garment back on. Depends on your translation. Uh, but but his nakedness wasn't total nakedness. There's some other passages that seem to indicate situations in which nakedness is not total nakedness. I don't have a big, big, you know, issue with that. I wouldn't, you know, consider it earth-shattering. But I, my guess is that he's not totally naked, but it doesn't make any difference. Kind of. What was your point about the feet thing? Well, if he was if he was just saying go totally naked, why tell him to take the shoes off? Obviously, that'd be included. He, but but I don't think it makes any difference um, if he was going around in his uh, you know undershorts or whatever. Uh, any of you really care to you know walk through Walmart that way? I mean, you know, I assume that whatever he's not wearing, it's quite shocking that he's not wearing it. You know, it's attention-getting, it's embarrassing, it's shameful, and it's got a point to it. Now, but but before I go to the point, I am impressed by the fact that God often asks his greatest servants to do things that are very, very difficult. We almost have this ideal of a non-committal reserve. You know, we want to be cool. We want to be reserved. We don't want to, you know, do anything too radical. But, I mean, we serve a God who asks Ezekiel to do all kinds of absolutely ridiculous stuff. I mean, you know, cook your food on cow's dung. Well, really, human first, but, you know, Ezekiel protested me, allowed him to, to do that. But, I mean, directly on it, I think, is the idea. And to, you know, go around the city, you swing a sword at his hair, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. It was really weird. And, I mean, he told Ezekiel, when his wife died, don't your wife. You know, do not lament. Don't put on sackcloth, and all that kind of stuff. And told Jeremiah, when he was just down you know, felt so lonely and isolated and absolutely by himself. He said, Don't go to party, don't go to a funeral, and don't get married. And he told Hosea, Go marry a woman who's gonna betray you. And then after she'd been with every man in the country, nobody wanted her, he said, Now go back and buy her back off the auction block. And a bunch of other stuff that God told servants of his to do that, wow, it was not easy. It was embarrassing, or it was hard, it was painful, it was emotionally traumatic. I mean, could God ask one of his people to go through Walmart in their undershorts? Or start naked, if that's what it is. That would even make the point more strongly. What a whew, what a horribly embarrassing thing. And he does it for how long? Three years. Three years. <laughs> so now this is not like, you know... He streaks through one time. You know, this is like, and lives that way for three years. I mean, we have a hard time because, you know, we got to tell somebody about Jesus who might laugh at us or think we were a fanatic. What if you were Isaiah? Now, the point of this is not just to be attention-getting. There's a lesson in this. Can you figure out what the lesson is? Why is he having him do this? It's going to happen to... Who's the them? (laughs) Yes. Um, The Egyptian and Cushite exiles and perhaps, uh, you know, others that the Assyrians captured were forced to walk naked and barefoot. And so this is a symbol... Of what the Assyrians are going to do to the captives. Now, there's a reason why he says this, and the reason or does this is the reason why he draws attention to this in five and six. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. So it happens in this coastline will say, "In that day, behold, such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. We, how shall we escape?" He's saying to Israel to the Philistines, it's really stupid to trust in the Egyptians and the Ethiopians because they're going to be walking around naked as captives of the Assyrians. So trusting in them and making alliances with them isn't going to do you a bit of good. That's his lesson. He draws a lot of attention to it, obviously, by sending Isaiah everywhere barefoot and naked. And, uh, but, but it's making the point that that's the stupidity of turning to the world for help and solutions. The world's going to be like this. Egypt, Kush, or anywhere else you want to turn, the Assyrians going to strip them naked too. So a lot of help it's going to be to send all your tribute money down there and try to make an alliance. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Think that's the lesson. Now this is probably uh, several ways to analyze this and, and applications to make. What comments and questions do you have? From I was
6: wondering did I miss, or if there going to be some other
0: instances of things I don't think there is. Is there? Do you remember anything else he acted out? I, I can't remember
5: anything else he acted out
0: it's rare for us to see Isaiah the man much rarer for us to see Isaiah the man in Isaiah than it is to see Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel mostly we just have Isaiah's message and only occasionally does the man Isaiah come into play Shane um,
2: do we know why he's sackcloth sackcloth uh, is, it, is
0: he warning the, I, I guess he would go with I assume When he's saying I'm I'm mourning for these people, is that why? I don't know why, but yeah, you would assume it's a mourning thing, but I don't know specifically why. Micah.
2: Uh, That's kind
0: of what I was going to ask. Okay. Great minds. (laughs) 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 I didn't get that. All right, other questions and comments on Chapter 20? All right.
5: okay uh,
6: mm-hmm.
3: I guess uh, I was just—I um, don't to say anything you didn't say, but it's just really shocking to see that the Lord isn't really concerned about His, you know, mental health, and His emotional stability, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, how is He going to take this sort of thing? You know, people just say say like goofy things sometimes. You know, I'm glad you're able to do that evangelism, but. My personality just couldn't handle that sort of rejection. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like that. And, and we just have a culture that tries to be—they think they're very sensitive to people's well-being and things like that—and the Lord just isn't isn't concerned about that sort of thing. It's, it's obedience or it's disobedience. It's it's obedience or rebellion. And uh, you know, I mean, long-term, it's always better to do it's always better to do what's right. And. Uh, Isaiah here uh, would have a thousand one reasons to to, to say
0: no to this. And uh, he doesn't. You know, he's blessed for it. That's an excellent point. It's kind of like saying to Paul, you know, my body just doesn't take such meetings. You know? <laughs> and you're exactly right. God is not concerned to make this um, emotionally, um, you know, helpful. To his servants. I mean he tells his servants sometimes to do things that are that are really embarrassing, that are really difficult, that are really give them a lot of anguish and put them, them through a lot of pain. I mean certainly physically as well. we, we just think man if it's hard it's too much. You know, I mean, this is so hard for me. This is just so hard. You I know, mean, this is so hard. Well, yeah, right. I mean, it wasn't a piece of cake for Jesus to die on the cross. You know, nobody said it was going to be easy to serve God, and we need to quit making excuses. Well, it's just so hard. Well, of course it is. We never said it wouldn't be. Now go do it. That'd be what the Lord would say. Don't ever think, well, it's hard. That must mean I'm not supposed to. You know, that, that, but, but these passages help us with that. And they help us just, um, you know, get over-pampering ourselves.
6: Sometimes we may even incorrectly uh, give, give God credit for trying to stop us from doing something. And, oh, God wouldn't want us to do that. He's trying to stop me because it'll cost too much money. It will. It'll cost me some time here and there. It'll, uh, it'll be painful.
0: And so God, you know, God's telling me not to do this. Man, well, God wants you to be happy, right? <laughs> How often you heard that one? I mean, you know, he wouldn't want me to stay in this miserable marriage, would he? And be so unhappy and all that. I mean, God wouldn't want that, would he? Was Isaiah very happy right
2: around the
0: Yeah, I mean that's I don't know of any passage where we see God overly concerned about the happiness of his people there's a joy involved in serving the Lord it's not really the same thing as happiness and uh, I don't know I mean I expect moments when you know Paul wasn't overly happy uh, but that's okay if we serve the Lord, and
2: when we obey the Lord, that should be happiness enough. You know, I, I find that the more I, I try, the, more, the harder it is, and the more I try to obey the Lord, but really the happier I am. And really, obeying the Lord itself should give us a joy that we can't get from anywhere
0: else. Certainly, enduring hardship is a blessing, Caleb. Um, I just
2: I I'm just impressed with you know looking more generally over God's message to me. Israel and telling them, you know, this is not where to turn to other people. And it's just like history told them that. I mean, if they look back at things that happened in the past, they would see that. And their experiences even of the day. And yet they always seem to do that. And it seems like we're, we're a lot like that sometimes today. In that we know intellectually a lot of times that turning to the world or turning to... Uh, sin, uh, things like that aren't really going to satisfy us or aren't really what we're looking for aren't really what we need uh, they aren't really going to bring us answers and yeah, a lot of times we do the same thing <coughs> for whatever reason in the moment we forget about God and what is what really where we can really find deliverance and salvation and we'll turn to all different other types of things to try to satisfy us or to turn there for answers and in life. No, it
5: doesn't
2: work. Yes. Like, some people like, yeah. You know, some people won't even have really to have any respect for you. to tell my cousin or do something, they do. But, I mean, imagine how little respect I see him as a man <coughs> walking around with practically no clothes. close
5: them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Be easy.
5: Basically. Yeah, amen. I think uh, Acts 5 could be a good description of this and how his disciples had to do and punishment that they
2: face yet yeah, um, in verse uh, 29 it says we must obey God rather than men and then over in verse 41 it says so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name they yeah I doubt they were happy but they are <coughs> extremely rejoiceful just for the fact that they were able to do that and it's though I guess Isaiah, just for the fact that he is practically naked, isn't exactly persecution yet, but eventually I'm sure that would have come. And yet, it doesn't matter if
6: he's it just
2: following
0: Yeah, It's more or less what I told Hian yesterday for various reasons, but that, you know, hope that they make it really hard on you, because that will give you even a greater opportunity to show God's glory and God's transforming power in your life. It, the harder it is the more we can glorify God tell me we would have been really helped by the story of Job if none of that stuff had ever happened to him and he would lived his whole life in great prosperity with a wonderful family around him we wouldn't even wanted to read the book you know the thing that makes Job helpful is what he went through we glorify God most when it's tough
5: Kyle I do be a dead horse, but, I mean, I, joy, when we consider concerned, happy, uh, joy is contingent on what we, what makes us that. And, you know, if we serving the Lord, what makes us joyous as it should be as a Christian. Then it doesn't matter what we're doing or where we are or circumstances we're in. And, you know, but if what happiness is, as Americans are defined is comfort, then, you know, we can have that, but it'll be at the cost of not having joy of the Lord. Interesting, uh, just thinking of, uh, Paul of the and uh, just over, it was like that over and over again. And, you know, uh, take joy, have joy, uh, persevere with joy. And just thinking, you know, relating that to us, uh, you know, what Paul went through uh, is, is more than, uh, I think, it's safe to say, all of us, any of us, here, the truth of victory. And he took joy. And I might think some a pretty embarrassing things as well. very painful things. Uh, and yet, you know, he had no problem uh, taking joy in the Lord. And then we can do the same thing.
2: Amen.
0: Amen. John?
5: There's one thing to, you
6: know, be embarrassed by what God commands us to do, but have you ever had somebody, you know, use this to say God is promoting, you know, nakedness or whatever? no. Never. No. Um, I'm person.
0: I'm,
6: well, I'm the first then. But I mean, can you, I mean, this is the first time since the
5: garden God is like, hey, let's go take your clothes
6: off. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of new. <laughs> Thank you for his head on that big you the
5: recording, man. the record. <laughs> cherry, uh, just
0: talking. <laughs> no well I mean I think the thing you'd say about that obviously is this was shameful this was uh, <clears throat> you know something that, that, that to be dismayed and ashamed about it's what the it, uh, the Assyrians did to their captives to humiliate them so I mean if anything I'm not sure this really deals with the argument about nakedness one way or the other but if anything it would say it's a humiliation and, and you know God's having Isaiah to do that to serve as a sign of the shame and humiliation of trusting in the nations and in human solutions. We need a little break there, didn't we? Thank you. (laughs) After we've studied for I don't know how many dozen hours. uh, That's good for us. All right. Anybody else want to risk a comment? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Wes.
2: Well, I just think what we're, we're talking about before, what John took. It's very interesting to me that, you know, we look at John, or we look at Paul. We're, uh, we're I really mean to say that. But, uh, we look at Paul and all the other disciples and what they went through, and the hardships they went through. But then we look maybe at our Lord Jesus, and in the Garden of the He goes
1: to pray. He says that he's in very distress and trouble. And uh, when, he, when he says also my soul is deeply grieved to the point that remain here and keep watch to the disciples and we see our Lord and our Savior in the garden bending over praying maybe even blood coming out of his skin you know in agony of what he had to do and he knew he had to do this yet he did it because he was the Lord and not his and that's the ultimate uh, point of servitude and <coughs> maybe in our servitude where it's hard for us maybe that's when we're closest to God we actually
0: be Good point. Other comments, thoughts, questions? Yes, Mindy.
6: Okay,
2: and then i to, to
6: ask
2: the question, but so it's not awkward. <laughs> <laughs> now it is. <laughs> so for like a person that what would you say to a person who you know, like maybe their situation is really hard or whatever. Is it better to come down hard on them and be like, well, you just need to tough it out and deal with it? Or do you still want to try to like be kind and comforting if they're in a hard situation? Does that make sense? Like, how do you reconcile those
0: two ideas? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it depends. I think you see both in the Bible. I think you see times when God, Jesus, showed mercy and compassion people in tough circumstances. But then on the other hand, you see God to Jeremiah lowering the boom on him when he was in really tough circumstances and he was, you know, complaining about it. And man, God just really was tough on him. Um, so I'm not sure there's a one size fits all. J.D.? I think that's why it's so important to read our Bibles because
3: I think our own hearts can, can tell. It's like we're, you know, we're reading some of these passages and I can see where where some of these verses really apply to my situation, and some of them don't. And I can really learn. But no one can tell me, J.D., here's what you need to read. Here are the verses that are really going to help you. I'm only going to get that when I'm in the Word. And when we're in the Word, God's going to be telling us in more comforting ways sometimes. He's going to be telling us in uh, more harsh ways sometimes. And that's going to come from Him.
0: Yes, I agree. And I think that's even helpful in helping others. We need to try to get the Biblical balance. Look at Jesus and others as they related to people. And I think we do see how they related differently to people in different situations. And uh, we probably are tempted to only be compassionate. I think that's probably more our temptation. And sometimes we need to be tougher. You know, sometimes, uh, even in, in trying to help others, trying to, to show them that quit feeling sorry for yourself and suck it up I mean it's not that bad you know don't cry over this it could be a whole lot worse and uh, I mean I think sometimes if, if what I do mostly is sympathize and commiserate with people then it can make them sort of feel like this is too much this is too hard oh woe is me And just, in the last few years, my observation is, we sin most when we feel sorry for ourselves. That is just such a horrible state to be in, because we then justify every every sin, because after all, we're so miserable and poor us. Well, uh, we need to get off the poor us, look at the people in the Bible, and then say, poor me? Wow! I mean, you know, we haven't got... Anything close to the difficulty of situation of a Paul or a Jesus or you know a whole lot of other yes
5: we need read, read about our terms a little bit as well because when we when our goal is to help one another in eternal ways then the best thing to say to one another sometimes is well I know this is hard but think of as you said beyond I mean, think
0: how this can glorify God think how this can in your faith that is compassion it's just compassion not only kind of physical love. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and and if we love people, we will be willing to do the thing that's harder for us, and that is to be tough when we need to be tough. I would rather always say the sympathizing, compassionate thing. Almost always would rather. It's always more almost always more strenuous and more exhausting to have to say things that are tougher but if we care about people we'll say what they need not what feels good to
6: us
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's it alright other thoughts alright we're going to go about 15 more minutes and then we're going to eat so Uh, and chapter 21 uh, some of these chapters are just difficult (laughs) And chapter 21 is one of those chapters for me, so uh, bear with me. 21, 1 to 10.
4: The Oracle Concerning the Wilderness of the Sea. As windstorms in the Negev sweep on, comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still builds treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam. Lay siege, media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. Rise up, captains, oil the shields, for thus the Lord says to me, Go, station the lookout, let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one answered and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. O my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel I make known to you.
0: There is not much that's easy about this one. It's the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, whatever that means. Apparently according to verse 9 about Babylon, Um, and then the question even is about which fall of Babylon uh, and there as there was before a lot of people who would take this as the overthrow of Babylon by Sennacherib in 689 I'm going to take it very cautiously and tentatively as the fall of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians in 539 but I'm not sure about that but you see this vision about the treacherous one being treacherous the destroyer destroying perhaps that's an indication that Babylon was very it built its empire on destruction, on dishonesty on, on power and self interest they continued treacherously and destructively so God sends Elam and Media up to destroy Babylon and wow Uh, Isaiah reacts in horror. You know, his fear, uh, anguish seizes him. He's just overwhelmed by the destruction that he sees. He sees in verse 5, perhaps Babylon in a scene of self-satisfaction and complacency, preparing a big banquet, completely oblivious to what was about to happen. Uh, Perhaps Belshazzar's feast in Daniel 5, if I'm even on the right track with what this is about. And then they didn't have email or fax, so he waits for the writer to come back to say what's happened in the battle, and what happens is that Babylon fell. And verse 9, their images didn't help at all. They were shattered on the ground. And all of this is what he's heard from the Lord. The Lord's the one in control. And so if we're right at all in this, don't turn to Babylon for help, as Hezekiah was tempted to do. Babylon's not the source of strength. You know, don't don't, don't try to uh, rely on them. They're going to fall. All right, that's a brief... Summary, because I don't know anything more than that. So what do you want to say or ask about? Maybe somebody else will.
4: So maybe it's foretelling a future fall of Babylon that the message is perhaps Judah don't trust in Babylon.
0: That's more or less what I see and perhaps the fall of Babylon in 539. It's just very cryptic language for me, so... It's just a message, though. Yes. It would certainly fit. That's one reason I—it's kind of where I go with that. It seems to fit in with the themes he's developing here. Oh. <clears throat> Other thoughts? It is the threshed and the winnowed one, verse 10, is that Judah? I would think so. They are the ones that have been afflicted. Other questions and comments. All right. Well, I'll leave you with that because I don't know a whole lot more to say about that. That's just a really hard one. The next two here in twenty-one are difficult also. I think most people would acknowledge that these are just more difficult. Uh, it's not very uh, rather poetic and cryptic. Eleven and twelve. <clears throat> the burden against Duma. He calls
2: to me out to say, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Return. Come back.
0: Wow. Powerful message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Good. Explain it. Um, right. Duma means silence. And probably, possibly, is a play on the word Edom. The American Standard, the text actually has Edom, but that's just an interpretive translation. It's, it's Duma in the original. But perhaps he's playing on the term, the, the word Edom, to indicate that Edom is going to be silenced, kind of a sign of its fate. And you keep hearing the, the one calling watchman, how far gone is the night? And the answer is, morning comes, but also night. Now, I'm assuming that night here refers to, like, destruction or oppression, something negative. And they're wondering, how long the night going to last? And the watchman says, oh, oh, morning's coming, but then more night. There's going to be a brief respite, a brief reprieve, and then more oppression. Someone has said this is a brief oracle nearly as obscure as the night it speaks about. <laughs> but uh, but I'm taking this as Edom is being oppressed. We'll have a brief let up and then more oppression. Morning's coming, but then night comes back. Comments and questions? That's good. Yeah, J.D. Did is Edom? Seer is in Edom. It's a mountain in Edom. There's a number of passages that bear that out.
2: So, what does the end of verse 12 mean? It says, if you would inquire, inquire, come back.
0: I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> My favorite answer. <laughs> Other thoughts?
2: No. I'm trying to understand this. So, see how you found that? SDI
0: that is is Edom, or is a that's a play? That's part of Edom. Okay, and well Duma is saying is Edom. Duma means silence, but it may be a play on the word Edom. It has the same consonants. <coughs> All right, we can finish thirteen to seventeen. Get this chapter out of the way before we eat, and uh, chapter twenty-two is something I think I understand a whole lot better. So thirteen to seventeen
2: all about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia you must spend the night, O caravans of, of dead nights. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tina. Meet e- the fugitive with bread. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, In a year as a higher man encounter, I will splinter a in turn, and turn. The mighty men
0: of the sons of Peter will be for the Lord God of Israel spoke. I'm not sure a lot to get out of this. I do think it's a little clearer. This is about Arabia, including the Dedanites and Timah and Keter. and you see the fugitives of the of Arab fleeing from the sword, sword and the bent bow and the battle and God's saying within a year the splendor of Peter would terminate and his men would be few. An oracle of punishment against the Arabians again the thing you see in all of this is God's in charge and don't trust in anybody trust in the Lord. He brings every nation into judgment Comments and questions?
2: Who exactly are the
0: Dananites? Evidently people in Arabia. <laughs> Chapter 21 is just more obscure, but thankfully you didn't have many questions or comments about it, so uh, (laughs) we will consider that uh, successful. I do appreciate getting to do this, and uh, even though there's some things like this that are just hard, I think we've gotten a lot out of the thoughts in general. I think that's important for us. At least for me, I try not to just completely bog myself down in things I don't understand. I try to get as much out of the things as I can and move on and keep trying to get the overall message and understanding, which I think is something that we can certainly see. It is a powerful message and and helpful to us. And uh, so, that's uh, where I'm at with these things. It's uh, very encouraging to
5: to be together to do this. We were on pretty good track, too, by completing this, you know, we should be able to